0: Blood Talk Radio.
1: You want to replay the point? Okay. Mr. Mavrinkov wants to replay the point. Fifteen on.
0: Today is Thursday, February 16th, 2017. Pete Zebron of Tennis Acumen, joined by Karen Health of Tennis View Magazine. Good evening, Karen.
1: Good evening, Pete.
0: Sure, and uh, we're back after a couple weeks' time. A lot has happened in the last two weeks since we have last talked. And, um, Karen, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you at this point because uh, I've been uh, in action here. We've got a pair of concurrent challengers here in the state of arizona a 75k brand new men's tournament in tempe played at the campus of arizona state university and uh about a 10 or 12 year 25k being played at the northwest part of phoenix in surprise arizona so i'll just turn it over to you at this point to have some questions for me for these couple of challengers before we go back in regular mode and uh talk tennis
1: sure absolutely Well, first of all, I'm always jealous when you can get out and see things that I can't. Um, That's the best part of tennis is seeing it live. And I would encourage anyone who's never seen live tennis, even if it is a challenger event in your backyard, take a moment and get out there because there's nothing like live tennis. Um, I know the standout at this event you mentioned was Anastasia Podopova, Russian player. And I noticed she was ranked 336. Um, and had a career win-loss record of 31-17. and So she was one of the the players you had a chance to see this week. What were some of your impressions of her game?
0: Yes. Well, the women's tournament, uh, the 25K, Karen, and just a little history on this, uh, Yanina Wickmeyer, former U.S. Open semifinalist, has won this, as has Monica Puig, who obviously won the gold medal in the in the Olympics last summer, and uh, two years ago, Johanna Konta won the doubles event here in Surprise. So a lot of players make their way through this. This is a 64 uh, draw in qualifying, Karen. Even though it's a $25,000 tournament in Surprise, Arizona. I uh, Potapova Anastasia Potapova, who won the Wimbledon. Girls' Junior Wimbledon tournament last summer was featured. Uh, Nine o'clock start, uh, really early start here, and it was a, a little colder than we're usually used to here in Arizona. But she played uh, a girl, Amani um, Graham, who was the Orange Bowl runner-up last year, and she won that match, six-one, six-one. Very good match for Potapova. She looked good. Got a little down on herself at times, and I was wondering if that was more of the fact a. Is she 15 years old? B, is she Russian with that Russian mentality that we've seen Russian women players just berate themselves on the court? I, I tended to uh, stick with the former, that she's 15 years old. I hustled out yesterday at about lunchtime to catch her match against um, Taylor Johnson, a young American who's from the state of Arizona, who, whom she played at Wimbledon on her way to the championship last year. She beat her 1-1 one and one at Wimbledon. Um, this is a very unusual servant volleyer who's coached Karen by none other than Rosie Casals, a uh, nine-time doubles major champion, uh, won Wimbledon, I believe, five times, uh, U.S. Open four. She's won some mixed with Ely Nastasi as well. And so I had a chance to watch that match. Um, Potapova got off to a 4-1 start, was broken a couple times, but It was 4-all. Uh, at, at finally on her third set point in the first set she won and won that first set 7-5 before cruising to a 6-2 win over Johnson, but the neat thing for me, I was a fly in the wall listening to Taylor Johnson's coach, Rosie Cassell's talk not only about what she needed to do, but some of Pova's shortcomings, so it was thrilling to see the match, number one, but also to sit next to a legend and hear her commentary, if you will, during the match.
1: Yeah, that must have been extraordinary, you know, to have the opportunity to, to get that kind of insight is not something that, that happens very often. Right. From from that experience, what were some of the things that she was speaking to in terms of um, either the shortcomings of Potopovo and the things that she wanted her own player to work on?
0: Well, sure, thanks. Uh, Potopovo, she, she felt that she only had two really good shots. Um, obviously, I didn't know what those were. Uh, she said she didn't have much on her second serve at all, that the ball really sat up and that uh, her player, Taylor Johnson, should really have been taking more advantage of that. Um, Johnson is a servant volleyer, and so uh, Potapova really had a, an effective lob um, when she came to net. Uh, Potapova was nailing almost everything with the lob very deep, so those were winners. But what was disturbing for Johnson was uh, she put four or maybe even five Overhead smashes right into the net. And uh, I mean, these, these are points at crucial times of the match that could have maybe swung it her way, uh, gotten some momentum. Another thing Rosie was saying to uh, the lady she was sitting next to was, you know, she can put a point together, she can put a game together, but she's not winning the consecutive points she needs. She's not winning, she's not putting games together. I thought that was interesting. And this is a servant vollier, which is obviously as we know very rare in the game and at one point, Johnson screamed over to cassells uh, you know i'm i'm I can't serve and volley today. I just can't do it Then she smashed a hmm. ball to the uh to the back uh, of the court but um young girl this was a fifteen year old against a sixteen year old uh, There were all of uh about twelve or thirteen of us in attendance. It was thrilling to see this on such a small court in 2017. Potopova, I think, has got majors in her. Johnson, you know, she's got the right coaching right now. We'll see. Uh, I I liked her approach and her game. I I really chalked this. I mean, again, this was a 1-1 result at Wimbledon just in in June of last year, and uh, she improved that to 5-7, 2-6. So um, I'm going to keep my eye on Taylor Johnson as well, especially with the fact she's coached by a legend as Rosie Casals.
1: Yeah, definitely something to watch. And, and you know, again, I want to point out, I had a similar experience in 2015 uh, attending the Carlsbad Classic here in San Diego. Unfortunately, that event has moved on to Hawaii. But, you know, boy, I, I reiterate your point of, you know, maybe not a lot of people being there, but you're sitting right up close. You're You're having opportunities to interact with people that, you know, you might not even – have a chance to. I know at Carlsbad I actually got to sit down and meet Nicole Gibbs and she was just out in the crowd talking to people, you know. So, um, you know, it's just a different experience than the larger events and I think a great place for families to bring their kids to if they've never seen tennis. So um, exciting there. So let's move over a little bit then. And you also got to see some of the men at a 75K event at Arizona State. So what were some of the uh, matches that you saw there, and who stood out to you?
0: Well, a couple things, uh, Karen. This is the first time we've had a men. You know, I've talked about surprise uh, being here 10 or 12 years, a women's tournament. We also had a women's uh, 50, then 75K event at the Phoenix Country Club from 2009 to 2012, and uh, literally about seven minutes from where I live in Fountain Hills, Arizona. They call it Scottsdale, but it's really in Fountain Hills at the Wind Resort, We have a brand new 50k women's challenger that's in the month of november but this this 75k in tempe on the on the campus of arizona state university first men's pro tennis that we've had here in in arizona since 2005. um i got the chance to watch qualifying on both saturday and sunday nicholas jerry uh chilean who's ranked about 310 315 uh, really jumped out at me, a big game. A lot of people were commenting, saying, you know, if there's 310 guys that are better than this one, I uh, i can't quite believe that. Uh, Jerry <laughs> is more of a, uh, a clay court player, being a Chilean. Obviously, he's got a big game. Um, one, uh, you know, got through qualifying, then uh, played an alternate first round from Italy, Caruso. Lost to him. I was a little bummed out with that because we would have had – a uh, Nicholas Jerry Ernesto Escobedo matchup. Escobedo, the young American, with an incredibly big game. He's about 120 in the world right now. Karen, number one seed in this tournament. That would have been a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a real blockbuster of a match. That would have taken place yesterday. It's from the two days of qualifying. We're watching Jerry play twice. Uh, watching uh, Escobedo practice. I've heard the pop on his ball is unbelievable, and I agree with that. Just crushes the ball. You can hear the pop from four courts away, as I did on Sunday when he was warming up. And then another Brit uh, I give a lot of credit to, Luke Bambridge, who's in the low 200s from Great Britain, uh, helped Great Britain win the 2011 Junior Davis Cup championship. Uh, A lot of folks uh don't you know way under the radar junior davis cup i had a chance to talk briefly with him uh about his game the court speed if you will so uh nice to again have that interaction uh to to be able to have this and karen this is an event that's going to grow the arizona sports and entertainment commission is in charge of this event the head coach of arizona state university men's coach mark hill who came over from University of South Florida, had a chance to talk with him. Three or four of his guys were in the qualifying as wild cards and singles and doubles. Um, Brian Early, who is the USTA director of the Pro Circuit, was on hand. Uh, He's running the surprise event, uh, the women's event, but he stopped over on Saturday to Tempe, and I talked to the tournament director, Gary Nees, and the CEO of the Arizona Sports Entertainment Commission, Alan Young, they mentioned that Brian was there on Saturday. Gave them a thumbs up, uh, which means a lot because I just have to slide this in, Karen. This event just came onto the radar in November, and uh, for for something to come so quickly and to have the draw that they have uh, is is remarkable. The, I talked to both Gary Neese the director, and Alan Young, the CEO of the Sports Commission, and they are they have nothing but. Uh, praise to say about what they're going to be doing going forward given a full year to grow this they're actually looking to move it you know maybe a week later so it doesn't compete with the surprise event plus it'll give some guys match play uh, leading in indian wells with very comparable conditions we're only four hours literally four hours due east of indian wells on i-10 and if this can grow to maybe 100 or 125k event we're going to see some bigger names that will. Lead in and feed in right at in Indian Wells.
1: Okay, well, definitely keep me posted on that. I mean, that's something I would be interested in for next year. And as you said, a lead up to Indian Wells is just a spectacular alignment given the schedule and the geography as well as the court conditions. So um, great to hear that. And I also think that events that end up on college campuses just kind of have a Special feel to them mm-hmm. uh you know i I attended Stanford last year for the for the first time, and you know there's just something about that environment and you know the students being there and kind of a, another level of spirit that you find in the crowd or at least that's what I saw there.
0: no, I completely agree so, and one one last yeah one last point about that there was uh, the n c a champion um from Virginia I saw him playing the first day and he had a six four five two lead. Uh, two points away from winning, and he went down and, and injured uh, uh, from Virginia. Chase is his name, and unfortunately he couldn't continue. So that was another guy that I had looked forward to seeing the next day. But um, we're going to lead uh, away from college, uh, you know, from the Challenger Tour, uh, Karen, to uh, to now the WTA and ATP. And just wanted to ask you, you know, we had talked on the last show, um, you had really looked and done some research, talked about Coco Vandaway, as well as uh, her success that you credited Martina Hingis. And uh, just as soon as we started to sing their praises, Karen, Martina Hingis, Coco Vandeway are no more. What can you tell us more about that?
1: Well, I don't really know, background-wise, why the split. Um, You know, the one thing that comes to mind, perhaps, is, you know, Martina, look, she's a doubles player. That's her main focus right now. Coco is splitting her time between the two with obviously her singles career being her main focus. So perhaps at this point Martina is looking for somebody who, you know, really wants to track towards doubles. You know, she had such a strong partnership with Mirza for so long. Um so that may be a part of it. It it you know, it's hard to say and it was kind of funny that Coco mentioned down in Australia that, you know, Martina would be a little irritated with her because she took too long to win her singles match and wasn't going to be fresh for their doubles match. So, you know, who knows? Um, But, you know, I I can see where Martina wants to, to keep that focus and maybe a choice of a more, you know, pure doubles player would be more in alignment with what she's looking for right now. But either way, I'm sure Coco benefited to some degree from that experience, and now we'll have to watch the two of them and uh, see if Coco continues to work her game through the double side as well.
0: That's a good call. Um, And uh, one other sidebar when we're putting our outline together, um, the fact that Martina partnered with Leander Pays, uh, and they won Roland Garros last year. Uh, Obviously Pays, an extremely accomplished doubles player, Karen, but was missing Roland Garros on his resume, and now he's got a career grind slam in both mixed and doubles, and Martina Hingis a big part of that.
1: Yes, I was actually in the stadium for that win, and I have to say, both that doubles match as well, I'll give a, a tip to Mark Lopez and Feliciana Lopez, were probably two of the most emotional wins, you know, tears, hugs, jumping up and down, disbelief, and, and it was just a spectacular thing to witness, and uh, in his acceptance, yeah, you know, Leander just sung Martina's praises and really gives her so much credit in helping him achieve this career goal for himself. So, um, yeah, again, <laughs> she, you know, <laughs> and I think rightly so, she deserved it. And it was an amazing moment to be a part of. So I, I, I no, enjoyed it tremendously.
0: Extremely cool. You were there, and you know, just a side note. Innu Wells is coming up, and boy, those side courts in Innu Wells are just packed with people watching doubles, mostly, you know, more of the elderly population that play a lot of doubles, but they love their doubles. And I have to tell you, Karen, the uh, Potapova johnson match I attended yesterday, which, you know, if only people knew what was unfolding or, you know, who might, who on that court might or slash probably will do something going forward in the not-too-distant future – they may have peeled their, their eyes back, but like I said, there were 12 or 13 of us watching that match. There, there were about 20 or 25 people on the court next to us. If I turned my back, they were on the court next to us, right behind us, watching a doubles match uh, between four girls that I, I hate to say, I, I didn't know any of their names, and yet, you know, we've got. Uh, a potential major singles champion of Potapova competing. And Johnson, we'll see what she can do. But that just goes to show you the popularity, spectator popularity of doubles and, and what that means. It uh, does, certainly does not get its due on television nor media. The folks that, that attend tournaments uh, certainly turn out for doubles.
1: Well, I'll add one more thing to that. I, I agree. I don't get the disconnect between Uh, What I'll say is maybe sponsors and doubles, uh, because I think the fans enjoy it. Certainly at Indian Wells, when Stadium 2 was built, it was kind of built and showcased a lot of doubles. Roger Federer was out there with Stan. You know, there were some amazing matchups. And uh, something that really bothered me, I was in Monte Carlo a couple years ago when the Bryan brothers won the final. And it, it was a pretty full house. People were there. It took place before the men's singles final. The cameras were covered. There was no TV coverage whatsoever. And in the Bryan brothers' uh, acceptance, they actually referred out to the crowd that we realize you're not really here to see us, but we appreciate it anyway. I mean, it was almost like they were apologizing for being on the court. And yeah. I thought, what a shame. You know, it, 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 doubles is such a dynamic, exciting, fun. Um, uh, you know it's just a different animal and you get to see different aspects of the players personalities as well because they have that partner out there to interact with you know and so it just tends to bring out different types of moments and you know it's such a high pace you know with the net play and and the volleys when they get into these points where you don't even know how they're keeping up with the ball but they manage to do it so i i want to give a plug to doubles and agree it doesn't get its due. And I, again, don't quite understand it. I think it's a big missed opportunity.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to throw one more doubles plug in before we move on. And that is, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago in Cincinnati, Karen, this was the year that uh, Jack Sock, Vasek Pospisil beat the Bryans at Wimbledon in the final. And they they rematched again uh, at the Cincinnati final. And Finals day in Cincinnati, we've got the the men's doubles final first up on on the grandstand court, which is just finals day. And Pete Holterman, the media director in Cincinnati, sent out a a picture, a tweet uh, of people – you know, waiting to get into Cincinnati on Finals Day. You know, three hours before the first Finals, going singles Finals, gonna be played. And you know how we see it at Wimbledon, where they open the gates and everybody is supposed to walk very quickly. But you get some people bursting into sprints and whatnot. That's what it looked like <laughs> that day when uh, when Pospisil and Sock played the Bryan's again. They got them at Wimbledon. Bryans has got them that day, but. That was a full house on Grandstand Court in Cincinnati. That's that was uh, that was a thrilling moment. But yeah, I, I'll, I'll throw it back to you on what you said about the Bryan's almost apologizing. It's too bad, but um, great action. And um, you know, Indian Wells coming up has some of the best doubles that uh, that we'll see all year. Just with guys and gals really wanting match play on the hard courts before uh, those two big tournaments come into play but before uh, we talked about Fed Cup Karen one more split if you will we talked about Martina Hingis Coca Vandeway Rafael Nadal Tony Nadal um, I didn't see this one coming you know obviously Carlos Moya has been in, uh, in working with Rafael Nadal since he is no longer with Milos Raonic but um, wow what a, what an incredible partnership what an incredible run between Uncle Tony Nadal and Rafael Nadal, and Tony Nadal making the announcement that this is his last year. I'm, I'm stunned. Um, at the same point, it could be refreshing for Rafa, given where he is. I almost look at it as, you know, Pete Sampras using a different racket at the twilight of his career. I don't want to put Rafa in the twilight because he's proven everybody wrong a half a dozen times already. But uh, I, I didn't see this one coming. Um, And I hope it all works out well for all parties. What are your thoughts?
1: You know, well, first of all, it's not a split yet. (laughs) It's an announcement of a change. And, you know, I have read more and more around Tony's actual words versus the way some people were portraying it as sort of, you know, a a less than amicable thing. Yeah. And, you know, what it sounds like, and and it makes sense to me now, is he had already made his decision. He didn't mention it going into Australia, because I think it would just add one more thing that Rafa did not need to think about at that time. He's giving a year of transition. And I go back to, again, what I said about Moya, both Moya and Roig. They're very close to being family And I think for Tony to cut the ties and feel comfortable, he had to know first that Rafa was with someone that he knew they could trust, has his best interest at heart, has a great relationship, and is going to be able to continue that. So Roy also brings the continuity that he's been there all along. He's typically been the March guy for Indian Wells in Miami when Tony hasn't gone, and that's been a continuing theme over the years. Maybe a lot of people don't know that. Um, So I think Tony believes Rafa's in good hands. Look, he's 30 years old, so he is making more of his own decisions, and some other people are coming in. Tony's 55. He's given a large portion of his adult life to his nephew. He does have his own family. Um, He doesn't like to travel. (laughs) He has said that before, too. So You know, living the life of tennis and that being such a requirement, you know, I think he realizes also maybe where his greatest value can be added at this point. They've opened the academy, and they have some wonderful things happening with youngsters there. Tony likes to be heavily involved in player development. Rafa's pretty well developed at this point, and, you know, I think there's just more tweaking and fine-tuning so I, I think that's it. And then lastly, I'll say, you know, he's also probably tired of the accusations and perhaps also saw that maybe that was adding some stress to Rafa, you know, in having to face those questions constantly and having there be some level of doubt put out there. Um, and he kind of just took that away and took it also off of Rafa's shoulders of having to even maybe think about it or think about making a decision. He did it for him. And, and, you know, I think um, that says a lot. He's also mentioned, I'm going to be around. I'm not gone. Um, If something should happen and you need me to come back in, I will absolutely step back in at any moment that I'm needed. So, I think clearly there. there's nothing wrong relationship wise. People need to stop with those kinds of stories and uh, let's see what plays out for the rest of the year. And, you know, I think Rafa's in, in good hands and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice transition. And I think a smart one too, you know, most people change coaches and they cut and run, you know, you're out, you're in. And I don't right. know that that's, smart when you think about it um you know building some kind of transition time where there's handoffs and maybe collaborative discussions and things like that seems like a smart plan
0: i agree and and you know in addition to francisco Rojas always being there for the north american hard swing in Wells in miami he's also been there for the canadian masters and cincinnati as well tony didn't make those trips. So, uh, you know, quoting Rafa himself in press conferences, every tournament is important. You know, I, I once asked Rafa in Cincinnati, I said, well, you know, this is a warm-up for, uh, for the U.S. Open. And he corrected me. He said, no, no, this is not a warm-up. This is a very important tournament. And it Mm -hmm. it makes all the sense in the world. It it absolutely is. I mean, we look at this, okay, it's not a major. Sure, it's a Masters 1000, no discount in that at all. But to Rafael Nadal, probably more than anyone, I'm using his exact word, this is an important tournament to me, and it is. And so for Mm -hmm. Francisco Roy should be there for, you know, four of the Masters 1000s, uh, maybe more that we know of, you know, the two – here in March and the two in August. I mean, yeah, I like your point about Tony's not going away. And, and, and again, this is a transition. And, hey, you know, if you need me right away, make a phone call and I'm there. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I like what you say about the the transition. I think that's very important, very imperative. And uh, right now, Karen, we're going to switch the Nadal Tony Nadal to some Fed Cup action that we had last weekend. Wow, it seems like a long time ago already, but uh, a lot of these uh, situation scenarios were just decided, you know, over the weekend, and we'll start off with the Americans taking on the Germans in Hawaii, uh, a, a big anthem debacle there, but we're going to concentrate more mm-hmm. on the action on court, and uh, wow, the United States uh really took care of business there with Allison Risk and Coco Vandeweghe taking care of business on, on court in Hawaii. A nice nice win for the Americans, obviously the Germans without Angie Kerber, but you know, looking at her result this week, she's now four and four on the year. Uh, the German team looks to be a powerhouse and the Americans, Sans, Serena and Venice Williams took care of the Germans quite easily, more possibly more easily than most people thought in Hawaii. Your thoughts?
1: Well, I, I want to go back to doubles again and make sure we give a shout-out to Bethany yeah. Maddox-Sands uh, and Shelby. Uh, you know, Bethany's now the number one doubles player on the WTA Tour, and, you know, she handily uh, took took her part and her place in that, that uh, competition as well. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the four of them are an excellent combination. They've got a lot of great camaraderie. They seem to also be having fun out there. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, where the hosting is, but the U.S. is next up to host the Czech team. Uh, have you heard any thoughts on where that might actually take place?
0: I I have not. I haven't heard anything about that. Right. Um, I
1: would, well, you I'm going to put in a plug it, like, then. Come to San Diego. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we had a great time when the Davis Cup was here a couple, a couple years ago at Petco Park, and uh, we'd love to have you back. So if anyone's listening.
0: No, good call, and um, uh, the Czechs are going to be the opponents. Uh, nice to see the Czechs dedicate their victory to Petra Kvitova, who un- unfortunately is on the shelf right now, but a uh, big win yeah. for the Czechs there. So that was, uh, that was a very nice gesture.
1: Yeah, she's, she showed some great support, even though she couldn't be out there playing, which was no surprise for Petra. That's just the kind of person she is.
0: Yep. The other uh, matchup uh Karen's gonna be Belarus. Uh I'm you know, I'm familiar with uh Ceznovich, having seen her play before, but I hate to say I couldn't really name another player on the Belarus squad and yet they uh they took care of business and they advanced and uh, they're gonna host Switzerland. So uh again Martinez Hingis comes into play again, uh Belinda mm-hmm. uh, the Swiss are uh the Swiss are a formidable team, but wow what a what a credit to a Belarusian squad that uh is in the semifinals here.
1: Yeah, they did. They did a great job. And uh, again, I think um, you know another one could could have uh, Victoria Azarenka with them, but she's also sidelined right. for for some great personal reasons. So it's yep. nice to see these players that maybe are not you know the top ranked, but they're able to get out there, be excited, be fired up about playing for their country and producing great tennis. So. Um my, know, uh, Karen, my, I, I think it's nice that those opportunities are happening, actually.
0: Yeah, my spotlight not to take away from the victors, uh, the Americans, the Swiss, the Czechs, or the Belarusians. Karen, my highlight for Fed Cup weekend uh, is on the Slovakian team. How about Daniela Hantakova defeating Sarah Arani 6-2, 6-love? Hantakova, wow, has been struggling for a long time now. Obviously a two-time champion at Indian Wells. Um, you know, meandering, I think, around the the two hundreds in the rankings and whatnot. But six two six love. I mean, w- we see funny things happen in Davis Cup. We and and now here in Fed Cup action as well. It's it's just a different ball game. But nice to see Danielle Hantakova. Let's see if she might be able to parlay this going forward. I'm I'm hoping she'll get a wild card in any Wells. It's happened before. Obviously a two time champion. I'm not sure if the ranking would justify it this time, but we shall see.
1: Yeah, it would be great to see her back. I also had a chance to see her in Carlsbad a few years ago. And like you said, you know, she has had some great achievements in the past, definitely some struggles. Let's see where she can play out through the rest of the year.
0: Yep, and we're going to switch it over now to Davis Cup, where uh, Birmingham and Alabama, obviously the Americans got the job done there. But uh, first off, Karen, we're going to talk about something that's been in uh, a lot of the news, you know, tennis seems to make uh means mainstream sports uh ESPN Sports Center or whatnot with guys smashing rackets or, you know, controversial things and here we go again, Dennis Shapovalov, young Canadian who uh, you know, they were he was playing here's a here's a youngster playing a live fifth mm-hmm. rubber for Canada and uh down two sets, down a break, I believe in the third to Great Britain, smashes a ball in disgust, ricochets off the umpire's microphone. Uh, strikes the umpire right below the eye, really an uppercut to the eye, and uh automatically DQ'd, right call and whatnot. Um, in surprise Arizona, uh, Karen, uh Brian Early, who, you know, we've seen his name before, we've seen his face before, mm-hmm. uh being, you know, throwing serena williams out of the u.s open final uh with with what went on a few years ago so brian early is no stranger to uh sports turner highlights as well here he is at a 25,000 US usta tournament itf tournament you know really running the show there and was talking with him for a little bit and um he, he showed me a picture on his mobile phone of uh of the umpire there were five people lined up for a for a picture, if you will, the officials, and uh, he shared with me, he said, you know, this guy, this poor guy couldn't sleep for four nights, and, uh, you know, that was on Sunday that he shared that with me, and obviously, uh, earlier in the week, it came out that the gentleman needed surgery, so just a very, very unfortunate situation for the chair umpire, first and foremost, Denis Shapovalov, hope he learns a lesson, but, you know, This is a really, really gray area. Where where do we go from here with respect to these outbursts? And uh, I don't know. What what can we expect?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing I thought about is, is this going to be a precedent that's just been set? But then within that, where do the gray areas exist? Because clearly, Shep, I'm going to mess up his name, (laughs) he he did not intend – to hit the referee, there's no question about that, and in fact, a friend of mine watched his live reaction and just said, You know he, he was so real and and raw in his response of you know remorse <laughs> that there you know there's sure. no question that he wanted anybody to get hurt and had no thought that something like that might happen. so the question becomes, are the rules about stopping people from possibly hurting somebody by doing these kinds of things, slamming a ball and having it potentially hit someone? And is it preventing that behavior or are we going to punish those that perhaps are unlucky enough to have something like this happen where they actually do injure somebody? And I'd be inclined to think it's the former, right? We don't want to see this behavior on court because someone might get hurt. And in fact, here you go. Um, so that said where do you call it because you know I want to go back to uh, an incident in Doha (coughs) involving Novak and you know he was playing the final there hit a ball again I'm sure with no intent of hitting anyone it did in fact hit a fan on the head not seriously not hard fortunately but in the player's intent and in their behavior was it really that different, other than, of course, the outcome being an injury? So so that's kind of the question that I have there. And and did we just set a precedent for the season that is saying, look, <clears throat> you know, we are going to have a DQ and we are going to call these and we're not going to tolerate anything because someone might get hurt versus someone did get hurt. So, you know, and then I think you and I spoke a little bit earlier when, in fact, the incident happened with Novak, you know, Nick Kyrgios spoke out and said, hey, if that had been me, I'd be suspended already, and nobody yeah. even called anything. So you know, I, I just think it, there's such an importance of enforcing the rules fairly, enforcing them the same across the board, across all players. I don't care if it's you know, time violations or whatever it is, but there needs to be consistency because in order to be fair, that just has to happen.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, and we had an unfortunate situation. I, I really hope for everyone involved, players, coaches, fans, chair umpires, umpires, lessons are learned here, and, uh, you know, we had a, an extremely situa- uh, extremely unfortunate situation, and we, we still don't know the end of it with, with the chair and, and, you know, what's going to happen with him going forward, and uh, as you mentioned, Shepovalov of Olive showed remorse, but at the same point in time, it, it, it happened. So uh,
1: mm-hmm. we just
0: need to be careful. And, you know, I, we see, again, as I mentioned, tennis, you know, on TV making the highlights for guys smashing rackets, gals smashing rackets, you know, people arguing with the chair. Is seemingly, these are only, the only tennis highlights we see, you know, in, in the Sports Center telecasts, if you will. Uh, not great points, points of the year, if you will, but the, the controversial thing, So, uh, I'm with you all the way, uh, no matter whom it is, Novak Djokovic or someone in a challenger tournament, uh, something needs to be done. Um, and that, that leads me to the point where, you know, we've seen a lot of players destroy their rackets, and that gets a lot of TV coverage as well. Gee, I would much rather see someone destroy a racket or two or, or five like Baghdadis did back in the day rather than strike a ball that, uh, as we as we just saw, you know, less than a couple weeks ago, what can happen. So, uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I liked what you said, Karen. Uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen in 2017. Is this going to set a precedence or not? And, um, uh, unfortunately, there was already damage done, so we shall see. Um, we're going to move over right now for a couple of guys who um, – a uh, couple of the younger guns, if you will, although Grigor Dimitrov not no longer a young gun. Alexander Zverev is – but how about the torrid start to Grigor Dimitrov's 2017, Karen? He is continuing. You know, he won the opening tournament of the year, played Rafael Nadal extremely well in that Australian Open semifinal, wins the title in his home country in Bulgaria and Sofia, he is in the quarterfinals here in a in 500 in Rotterdam. I believe he's 17-1 and one this year. Um, you know, came very close to taking out Rafa and maybe playing in a final as well. What – what is going on in the world of Grigor Dimitrov this year?
1: Well, one thing that Grigor referred to as well, working with his coach, is that they've broken down his game into simplicity and that they're focusing on very simplistic basics, and that that seems to be working for him, of just keeping things simple, keeping a routine, uh so maybe he also has found the right combination and the right formula you know we know he's had so much potential for a long time i think he's also sort of a casualty of expectation with the baby fed moniker you know i think that maybe hurt him more than it helped him and um you know he seems to really be hitting his stride this year and showing consistency and i went and looked at his round 1 and round 2 stats in rotterdam uh, you know he just uh took out Dennis who could have been the wild card and could have been trouble for yeah. him as he was for some people down under you know and then he also played Misha Zarev who was you know similar you know was a tough opponent for some people and came out not expecting to do well and yet pushed some pushed some important players so what i noticed in both of his matches his first serve percentage is 75% and 77% respectively and then his uh first serve points won 73 percent and 85 percent so with stats like that, he's going to be awfully hard to break and you know as we know then you know that pushes everybody are we going to have to go for a tie break here and uh you know if he can maintain that type of consistency throughout this or any tournament he will just be uh, continue to be a tough opponent as the year progresses
0: Agreed. It's nice to see we've been waiting for it. We've seen flashes of it. Um, We've seen him put together some runs, but nothing like this. So this is very refreshing. Um, Really intrigued to see how he may be able to carry this going forward in 2017. And Karen, you know, one last point here before we wrap up, uh, we're going to talk about Alexander Zverev and then final talking points here. But Let's look at Zverev. Uh, Again, I am – this is, again, another intriguing player on the ATP tour. Was off to a great start, a flying start in the Australian Open, up two sets to one against Rafael Nadal. It's a head game case, in my opinion. You know, he lost to him at Innie Wells last year where he had a match point. Uh, I I just think Rafa, you know – was able to outlast him, if you will, or out-mental him, if you will. Zverev crashed and burned in that match, taking no credit away from Rafa. Goes in the Davis Cup, limps into it. Germany loses to Belgium, hosting Belgium. Steve Darcy, of all people, a a hero for Belgium with the the victories he's obtained there. And yet, Alexander Zverev bounces back and wins in France at 250. But, Karen, he beat Jeremy Chardy. Joe Rufat-Songa and Richard Gasquet, three consecutive Frenchmen in France to win this tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at, I really look at, you know, it's almost a relief not to be playing Davis Cup at home for this guy. Uh, That was almost too much for him compared to, okay, going to the country next door in France and knocking out all their top guys. Incredible. This is what Zverev has uh, as potential. I just hope uh, he can get it right between the ears going forward.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he's hit his career high ranking at number 18, and has had a strong start to the season in in a number of ways. And as you said, you know, took the title in France, and I think in some ways that points to him having it pretty good between the ears. Because when you're there and you're up against a crowd that clearly isn't going to be rooting for you, uh, you're a young guy, uh, potentially could be you know bothered by things that the crowd might be saying or the fact that the crowd isn't with you and i think you know he, that that kind of thing isn't going to bother him he's out there he wants to play he wants to play the top players he's not intimidated by playing the top players he he is seeking those kind of challenges and knows that you know he, he has chances I saw him for the first time last year at Indian Wells in a press conference. And I have to admit, the gentleman who asked the question sort of threw him a nasty question. It was more about, you know, you're kind of becoming a hot shot here. How are you keeping your feet on the ground, you know, and kind of not becoming a brat, basically. And he was not rattled. He took his time. He owned the stage that he was on, and he answered with a very eloquent response, kind of referring to the fact that, you know, he's got his family around him, they're very supportive, you know, and and they kind of keep him in his place. And he knows, you know, um, if his head gets too far (laughs) above his game, he's not going to be going anywhere well. So I was really impressed with that first experience in seeing him speak, being, you know, very comfortable, handling something that, kind Of was a pot shot, and uh, you know, it didn't seem to matter to him. He's like, I know who I am, I know my game, I know what I want to accomplish, and uh, left it at that.
0: Nice. I, I'm going to share something with you about Zverev. Uh, this is Cincinnati 2015. Zverev came through qualifying, and his first round match on grandstand was against Borna Chorich. And, uh, Zverev really had the match, he had a match point. Did not play a tiebreaker well. George snuck that victory out and, and won the match. And, and I'll fast-forward a little bit because George, this year in Cincinnati, Karen, uh, really, really impressive win. He saved a match point against Nick Kyrgios. Next round, he he beaten up Rafael Nadal in about an hour and eight minutes, just, just destroyed Rafael Nadal, uh, played exceptional tennis. And then retired late in the first setting against the eventual champion, Cilic. But going back to 15, in the press box, uh, Rob Koenig, who uh, I just have a ton of respect for with his tennis acumen, with his mind, uh, I saw him the next day. I said, Rob, did you, did you call some of the Chorich-Zverev match? Yes, indeed. I said, so, okay, here we are, 2015. Who has a better career going forward? And without a blink of the eye, he said, "Alexander Zverev. He just has more game, more tools to work with." And to me, it was neck and neck at that point in time. I like Borna Church at all a, a lot. I really liked what I saw him do last year, before he's hampered with injuries. We'll see where he gets to. I think George is maybe in the low 40s for the ranking. You mentioned Zverev, the career high right now at 18. Wow, did Rob Koenig ever have that spot on? But we'll see going forward what happens to both guys. But you know, that was a question mark. That was a dice roll for me in, in August of 15. To date, Rob Koenig has nailed it. And, um, Karen, before we wrap up, you know, a lot has happened the last couple weeks since we talked. Anything that you want to elaborate on before we call it a night?
1: Uh, no, I think that's it. I, I do want to just throw out a little trivia on WTA stats. And there's a player we mentioned earlier today um, Female, well, obviously WTA female, and she had the highest first serve percentage from two thousand ten to two thousand sixteen. Any thoughts on who that might be?
0: Ten to sixteen. Um
1: mm-hmm.
0: wow. <laughs> uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh let me throw something out here really quickly. Uh Coca
1: No. And this one really surprised me. It was actually Sarah Imrani. Um, oh my. So, you know, interesting because, you know, she, she's not seeming to play her best tennis right now, but, you know, um, obviously had a very strong run there with an important stat. So that, that just kind of jumped right out at me, and I thought, wow, um, that's pretty formidable given everyone else that was playing around her during that, during that time frame.
0: Well, my caveat to that is, um, I, I guess when you put in sixty-eight, seventy-two mile an hour first serves, that your percentage will be up there. That's my only thought on, uh, <coughs> on that. But
1: very true. To, to, to
0: her credit, you know that percentage is—you've uh, you, got to put it in to have a shot. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Very good. No, any other final thoughts on, on that? Was a great trivia question, by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, but you're also right in that, you know, stats and then the story around the stats, you know, make make a difference. Um, No, there's just been so much tennis in the last couple of weeks, but unfortunately we can't cover everything in one night. So uh, we'll be back in a few weeks with lots more to talk about.
0: Sure, and on on behalf of Karen Health, this is Pete Zebron saying good night. We'll catch you in two weeks on Replay the Point. Good night.